This is Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University Chicago, with a message for parents, grandparents, and godparents of college-bound children. Concordia Chicago is a distinctive, comprehensive university of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're devoted to our Lutheran confession and committed to strong academics. Please encourage your child, grandchild, or godchild to check out Concordia University Chicago at cuchicago.edu. And I want to thank Bernie Sanders and his supporters for their tireless energy and their passion. We share a common goal, and together, we'll defeat Donald Trump. We'll defeat him together. Last night, obviously, was not a good night for our campaign from a delegate point of view. We lost in the largest state up for grabs yesterday, the state of Michigan. We lost in Mississippi, Missouri, and Idaho. I very much look forward to the debate in Arizona with my friend Joe Biden. Democratic presidential candidates Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders reacting to Tuesday's election results. What does this mean for Bernie Sanders? Is he effectively out of the race? What will happen in that two-man debate scheduled to be held Sunday in Arizona? And what about the next round of primaries? Do they favor one or the other of the remaining two Democratic candidates? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us for a bit of a analysis of the 2020 presidential race at this point in time, Mark Hemingway, senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. Mark, welcome back to Issues Etc. Glad to be back. Well, after last night's mini Big Tuesday What changed in the last four years in Michigan for Bernie Sanders? He lost a state that he had won four years ago. Yeah, and he didn't just win it four years ago. I mean, I think the polls had him down something like an average of 30 points to Hillary Clinton in the state, and and he somehow defied all of the polls to come and, and, and win the state. It was probably the upset of that electoral season. There's a lot of ways that you could slice and dice the electorate to point to, you know, why he lost or not. But I think just the fundamental dynamics of the race were very different this time. Bernie Sanders is running against Joe Biden, who has a little bit of cred with working class voters in a way that Hillary Clinton just absolutely did not. Also, I think back in 2016, there was a lot of, especially among sort of, you know, blue collar Democratic voters, there was a lot of Obama fatigue. And they were looking for someone that was different and not necessarily part of the established Democratic Party establishment the way that Hillary Clinton was. And Bernie Sanders was, was that alternative. But this time around, I think Democratic voters are much more focused on electability with a Republican in the White House. And Biden offers that. You know, again, he, he likes to present himself as Scranton Joe, being much more in tune with the working class. So, you know, obviously it was harder for Sanders to, to make the case that he was your one working class alternative in, in a state like Michigan than it was four years ago. Do Tuesday's primary results mean that Sanders has no realistic path to the nomination? Well, I mean, it's getting increasingly difficult if you look at this, you know, the polling. But, you know, who knows? Um, If you actually look at the delegate count, Sanders uh, is down less than 150 delegates. And we have a, a debate coming up here. And, you know, if there's anything we've learned about Joe Biden, it's that he has not exactly been sharp as attack on the campaign trail. And there's a lot of, you know, murmurs of, you know, senility and how he's kind of, you know, too old to be doing this. Whereas Sanders, even though he's the same age, is comes off as a lot crisper and a lot more engaged. 
So I think they're hoping that for a moment at the debate or something that spins things very much in Sanders' favor. I mean, at this point, with only 150 delegates to make up, you know, it's, it's entirely possible. It'll be a lot harder to say that next week because there's some big states that are going to be voting. And if Biden Trump wins, then it'll become a, a lot harder. So I was reading in The Atlantic this morning, David Frum basically said Sanders has a choice. He could stay in the race and delude himself and become a tool for Donald Trump, or he could become the kind of public advocate for health care, his favorite subject. But Frum said he's got three days to make up his mind on this. What does the Sanders campaign do now? Well, that's a really good question. And one of the interesting things about the Sanders campaign is they have been historically and sort of gleefully opposed to the Democratic establishment. I mean, they're not interested necessarily in reforming the Democratic Party from within. They're, they seem much more interested in some kind of revolution and or takeover. So, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, they're that from is right in, in sort of the sense that there is a pragmatic path forward for him to be influential, obviously, given his hold on a certain segment of the Democratic electorate that is moving further and further left. But just attitudinally, the campaign thus far over the last, you know, since they emerged over four years ago, they, they've just not been interested in working you know, within the Democratic Party or with the Democratic Party. They've really been interested in trying to, you know, take it over or, you know, sort of dominate it from the outside. What does the Biden campaign do right now? Well, I mean, with being a two-man race and the polling looking good for them, I mean, what they're trying to do is trying not to stay out of their own way, which in the case of Joe Biden being, you know, a 78-year-old who is prone to sort of crazy outbursts, that's a little more difficult than it sounds. I mean, there was a story recently, I think, in the Washington Post a couple of days ago about how Biden is making shorter and shorter appearances at campaign stops. He's, you know, he's only giving speeches that are like seven minutes long and he's, you know, flitting in and out of events. And I think they're just trying to sort of like, you know, coast on his name recognition and uh, his standing in the polls at this point in time. Do they ignore Bernie Sanders as long as he stays in the race, which is difficult to do? Do you think they have a plan to kind of fold him in so that he doesn't do something that hurts them? I don't have a good idea. I mean, like, you know, I don't know how you solve a problem like Bernie Sanders. And like I said, he's not necessarily, he and his supporters in particular are not necessarily interested in, you know, him becoming health and human services secretary and him trying to change health care. I mean, they really want sort of a total leftist takeover of the party. I mean, Sanders himself, his entire political career has been, for the most part, outside the Democratic Party and, and identifies as a left-wing socialist and not necessarily a, you know, garden variety Democrat. So, Again, imagine they're probably running all kinds of smart scenarios and then the Biden campaign to try and find ways to, to mute him. I know it's kind of a tricky situation here because one of the interesting things about Sanders is that Sanders is at the top of the ticket. He, whenever he speaks, he tends to be you know, very forceful about what he believes, but he's very much not inclined to be an attack dog in terms of like going after, say, Joe Biden's corruption issues with his family or, or other things that he could really make an issue of. It's just not sort of his nature to do that. On the other hand, his supporters are known for being particularly vicious online and other things. And, and they're out for blood, and, and they seem to have, like, no trouble going after Biden and, and, and attacking him on, on fairly savage terms. So Sanders has got to sort of, like, keep a lid on his coalition. I don't know how he sort of, like, strikes that balance. But the truth is, at this point in time, if, if Sanders really wanted to win this race, he's probably going to have to get a lot more pointed and critical of, of Biden than he has been. And, and so far, nothing we've seen in his 
four plus years of, of running for president suggests that he's the kind of guy that's going to go out and do that. I remember a moment in the debate with Hillary Clinton and leading up to 2016, where he actually said, I'm, I'm tired of hearing about Hillary's emails. He kind of dismissed that. Do you right. think he might do that on the thorny issues that face Biden? You know, I don't know. I mean, he might do some of that after it becomes abundantly obvious that he can't win. He might see it to his advantage to circle the wagons around the Democratic Party that, you know, he claims to be a part of and, and wants to have some sort of influence on. So far, he's just been sort of neither here nor there. He, again, he very forcefully advocates his left-wing platform, and, and he will, you know, broadly attack people who are institutionalists and people who thinks are standing in the way of change, but he doesn't make specific, you know, pointed attacks on politicians based on their specific failings in a way that one would normally expect to win. You know, negative campaigning is, is you know, people decry it, but the fact of the matter is, is it's often very effective. What does the Trump campaign do now? They certainly have their strategy. I mean, I think that they are hoping to sort of run the same race in some regards that they did before in terms of pulling together the same sort of electoral coalition of, you know, non-college educated white voters in, in, in important swing states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and yes, Michigan um, and Ohio to win, win the map. Certainly, it'll be a little harder because... Biden is, is perceived, I think, by a lot of, you know, those same voters that Trump people are appealing to as less of an institutionalist than Hillary Clinton. And I don't know, it's possible that he might even have more appeal to the black community having been, you know, Barack Obama's vice president than Hillary Clinton did. Although, you know, the Trump campaign is, is making some interesting outreach moves. They're very clearly going after black males and appealing to them on the basis of the economy and, and other things and hoping that they can just peel, even even just peeling away a small segment of the black electorate for a Republican, even a couple percentage points, would be huge in terms of how it, it eats away at Democratic margins in urban areas and other things like that. So, you know, and the other thing is, I, I, you know, Trump will not, unlike Bernie Sanders, will not hesitate to go right for the jugular with Joe Biden. I mean, I think there's a favorable contrast there in the way that there's a favorable contrast between Sanders and Biden in that Trump, you know, for as loosey-goosey as he is, seems much more sort of, you know, sort of sharp and with it than Joe Biden does, who, you know, again, is mistaking his, his wife and sister campaign rallies and, and is just stumbling over his words regularly and, 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 I mean, and is causing a lot of people to ask, you know, honest questions about senility. They are definitely going to run their race, and, and they are not going to hesitate to pull out the, the, the big guns on, on Joe Biden. What are your expectations for a Sunday night CNN debate between the two candidates? It'll be very, very interesting because, you know, as we've said, Biden seems to be having trouble talking and he will have nowhere to hide in this debate because it won't be, you know, a stage full of a dozen different candidates. He's going to have to do a lot of talking. He's going to have to sort of, you know, clearly make his case and not have any senior moments and, uh, you know, just sort of get through it, basically. And, you know, like I said, it, it is an opportunity for Sanders to go right after him, and he could actually score a lot of points if he chose to do that and possibly turn things around. It's just the question is, does Sanders have it in him? Like, you know, we've discussed, he just doesn't seem to be interested in, in, in negative political attacks and, and, and personal political attacks. What are the next primaries, and who do they favor? So I think they are Tuesday, the 17th, and it's Arizona, Florida, Illinois, and uh, Ohio, which obviously Florida, Illinois, Ohio, those are some pretty big states with pretty big delicate counts. 
those, and I don't think that those are states that are particularly favorable for Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, Ohio does have a significant, you know, sort of working class vote that might appeal, that Sanders might appeal to, but, you know, certainly Illinois and Ohio have large African American populations that are probably going to go heavily Biden. Arizona is a much more sort of, to the extent that, that there are Democrats in the state and it's becoming more and more of a purple state, it tends to be a very sort of moderate Democrat that populates that state. So again, it's not fertile terrain for, for Sanders. And Florida, Sanders has come out repeatedly praising Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. So I expect Florida to be just kind of a bloodbath for him. And I think that was also one of the reasons why the Democratic establishment was getting really antsy about Sanders, because he kept publicly doubling down on his support for you know leftist dictators like Castro. And that effectively meant that if he was the nominee, then Florida was just off the map for Democrats with the Venezuelan and, and Cuban populations of the state. We're talking about the 2020 presidential race with Mark Hemingway, senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. It is likely that coronavirus will impact voter turnout. If that happens, does that favor Biden or Sanders? See my savior's hands. The title says it all. Pastor Will Whedon, author of The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March, See My Savior's Hands. In pictures and words, we follow Jesus' story by watching his hands, from childhood to his baptism, from his healings and miracles all the way to the cross, from his resurrection to his ascension. We'll see that his hands are always active at work to bring us blessing. Learn more and purchase See My Savior's Hands, a book for children ages 4 through 7 at issuesetc.org. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod celebrates and affirms life from the time of conception until natural death and every time in between. For this reason, LCMS Life Ministry is a program singularly devoted to upholding the sanctity of human life, both in our church body and the culture at large. Life Ministry provides educational materials, hosts conferences, and works closely with allies such as Lutherans for Life. For more information, visit lcms.org life and follow LCMS Life Ministry on Facebook. Mark Hemingway of Real Clear Investigations is our guest. We're talking about the 2020 presidential race. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Mark, do you expect coronavirus to impact voter turnout? And if so, does a lower voter turnout favor Biden or Sanders? You know, it's, it's really hard to say whether coronavirus impacts voter turnout. It depends a lot on the particular polling stations and, and what else is going on. Certainly with, say, you know, that there might be polling places, a lot of you know, like colleges and other things like that, where, you know, people are now commuting uh, or telecommuting to, to school or, or whatever that might reduce turnout. It's just very hard to say at this point in time if it's going to, how much it's going to reduce turnout. It'll probably reduce turnout a little, but it's hard to say. Now, as for whether lower turnout favors Sanders or Biden, I don't think it's really much of a question. Sanders depends heavily on younger voters who, who break significantly for him, like Democrats under 35. I mean, he has a commanding sort of lead with them. The problem is, is that younger voters don't actually vote. They get, you know, very enthusiastic, and people always talk about, you know, this is going to be the election cycle that younger voters assert themselves, but, you know, they're just not turning out in huge numbers. In 
in the way that Sanders would like in this particular election cycle. And, you know, for all their enthusiasm, it, it just doesn't translate into votes, whereas Biden has a commanding lead among older voters, and those people show up to the polls and vote. Your wife, Molly, wrote today for The Federalist about Biden's recent confrontation with a construction worker in Michigan. Tell us about it. Biden was confronted by a union worker who told him, quote, you are actively trying to end our Second Amendment rights and take away our guns, to which Biden responded, you're full of expletive, and the exchange pretty much went down the hill from there. Nothing about the exchange was particularly flattering for Biden, who mangled the facts on guns, distorted his own record on guns, and at one point he physically threatened the voter, saying he was going to slap him. What's really bizarre and I think telling is that the, the media are insisting this was a great moment for Biden. In order to sort of make that confounding claim, you, the media have to sort of choose to ignore the substance of what Biden said and his angry behavior and, and skip right to reporting on the, the optics of the confrontation, which involves a lot of tendentious meta-analysis of how they think the event might be perceived by, by others. And obviously that's not reporting, that's, that's just spin. And, you know, this just keeps happening. And in, in Iowa, Biden had a, a voter that stood up and asked him a perfectly legitimate question about his his sort of ne'er-do-well son, you know, getting a million-dollar-year make-work job with the Ukrainian gas company when he was overseeing Ukraine affairs with the White House. And Biden called him a, you know, liar and called him fat and challenged him to an IQ test. And, and the same thing sort of happened where the media said that one senior reporter said, it was a human moment defending his son, and Biden showed authenticity, emotion, and readiness for a fight that appeals to so many Democrats. I mean, it's just sort of astounding, I and mean, they're basically trying to instill this sort of double standard here. It's very hard to imagine with all the reporting that's been done on Trump's children's business dealings that a CNN reporter would dismiss Trump making personal insults about these questions with saying that this is, you know, authentic and that it appeals to his supporters. You know, clearly, I think that Biden's attitude on the trail and age is a factor, and people just don't want to talk about that for fear of sort of tanking Joe Biden's chances. And I get that. I mean, they, they want to stay fair, and, you know, we don't know what's going on in Joe Biden's head. But at the same time, we, we can't really pretend that Biden is, you know, sort of coherent. And, and like I said, they, they could have chose to cover the facts of what he said. You know, he seemed to think that AR-15s, America's most popular rifle, were already banned, even though they're semi-automatic rifles. He seemed to think they were automatic rifles. And he said he wasn't trying to ban guns, but he's given a lot of conflicting rhetoric that suggests that, that maybe he is. People need to take a closer look at these confrontations that Joe Biden is having and, and ask themselves some questions about them, because we're starting to see this as a recurring feature of his campaign, and, and I think it's a problem for him. So that was my next question. Despite the spin that was almost immediately applied to the confrontation in Michigan yesterday, do you think that these outbursts, especially if there are more of them, kind of the critical mass builds, are going to hurt him? I absolutely think they're going to hurt him. I mean, it's just no question that he's, you know, I watched an interview with him from four years ago, just a few days ago, and, and there's no question that he's just lost a step. I mean, he's 78 years old. I mean, like, the thing is, is that, I mean, I think we can all agree that the job of president is an inherently very demanding and stressful one, and in, a, in an ideal world, the idea that we'd be electing a president who is, you know, 78 years old to begin with is just, it's not a good thing. Trump himself is also in his 70s, and, and Bernie Sanders is also around the same age as, as Joe Biden, but again, neither Trump nor Sanders seem to be showing the sort of signs of decline that Biden is showing. And, and let's be honest, I mean, Biden has always been gaff-prone and, and somewhat questionable, even if he was, you know, genial in terms of his retail campaigning approach. So you know, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's going to be impossible to ignore this as a problem. Although, like I said, it's kind of appalling to me that the media are actively trying to downplay this stuff when it's, it's undeniably an issue. You had mentioned the Washington Post noting the shortening, extreme shortening of his public speeches. He's still got a general to run and to campaign for. Can his campaign, his handlers, afford to hide him as much as they possibly can? It depends on, on what the, what kind of you know race that they feel that they they have to run and how much of uh, you know what the polls say. I mean, I you know obviously there's a lot of polls showing that Biden beats Trump already, and there have been, but. Now, Trump is an incumbent president with lots of advantages, and the thing we learned in 2016 is that the polls were very wrong, and specifically in understating Trump's support. And it would be a huge mistake to sort of take Trump for granted. And further, like I said, Trump's going to be out there all day, every day, making fun of sleepy Joe Biden and his senior moments and all these other things, and it's going to be brutal for them. And if it looks like Biden is not healthy and out there and, and willing to sort of push back, and by push back, I mean, you know, actually, you know, go toe-to-toe with Trump as opposed to in voters, then it could very well hurt them. I mean, people just, you know, they need to feel like they're, they're getting behind a strong horse. And I'm not sure Biden is, is communicating, that, you know, uh, that he's a commanding presence that's going to um, get things back to normal. In the case of either of these candidates getting the nomination, do they have to choose a female running mate? I suppose they don't have to do anything, but there will be a lot of pressure, particularly within the Democratic coalition, if Biden is, you know, another aging white male to make the ticket diverse. Never say never. I mean, Hillary Clinton went out and picked Tim Kaine. But, you know, again, she was already going to be the first woman president. So I don't know. I mean, a lot of the speculation about Stacey Abrams and other, you know, female or minority candidates are it's already in overdrive. And I would, would not be surprised if, you know, they feel they have no alternative because they're so dependent on a certain, you know, minority and female electoral coalition coming out. With uh, progressivism advancing in the Democratic Party, how do you explain that the two final candidates at this point are two elderly white men? Certainly, if you're talking about the Democratic Party, I mean, Sanders is incredibly progressive. You know, he's been consistently radically left-wing within the confines of the Democratic Party for decades. So he's got a lot of clout with among progressives in, in that regard. But, you know, at the same time, you would note that Sanders, for all his progressive leanings, isn't particularly popular with minority voters. I mean, the truth is that African-American voters in particular tend to be Democrats, but they also tend to be very socially conservative and, and not very much interested in progressivism. So the Democratic Party has a problem on their hands. There's a lot of institutional pressures and excitement among the far left wing of the party, but the the voters aren't where that is. I mean, I think part of the problem is that the media is kind of in the driver's seat. You know, they are anxious to hype people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Bernie Sanders' youth support and all these other sort of exciting things for them to cover. And, and I think secretly they are, you know, more progressive than the average Democratic voter themselves, which explains a lot of the media's coverage. But again, just looking at this primary and then the results, again, we see that the vast majority of Democratic voters, aside from, say, out west, where, you know, minority populations maybe aren't as strong, and, you know, there's just more of a strain of sort of progressivism on the west coast, the Democratic voters are much more moderate and much more in tune with sort of a, a, a Joe Biden and, and, and to some extent the Barack Obama that ran in 2008 that ran very much as a pragmatic, even if he didn't necessarily govern that way. In that vein, do you accept the conventional wisdom that, it appeared for a while that the Democratic Party had lost control of itself, 
But with the Biden's recent wins in the primaries, it's proven that the Democratic Party has its act together. Honestly, it's hard to say. I think what's going, what happened there is, is that the Democratic Party just went into panic mode and they pulled a lot of sort of institutional levers to sort of, you know, regain control. The question is, is whether or not that has effects down the line. So are a bunch of Bernie voters going to sit at home in November because they don't like the way that the Democratic Party, you know, crowded them out and treated them poorly again, as kind of was the case in 2016? I don't think there's any question that a significant number of Bernie voters felt alienated for their party and didn't show up at the polls, and that was the reason why Trump won. So, you know, it's hard to say whether they're, they're sort of back in control. The issue there was what Sanders wasn't necessarily even reasserting, reasserting control, but I think it was more, a better way to phrase it because the Democratic Party was trying to stave off abject disaster, which is to say that with Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket, they were alienating a lot of suburban voters, a lot of minority voters and things like that. And, you know, there were actually scenarios that, you know, you could actually game out where Sanders actually won the presidential election and, and, you know, the Democratic Party just got slaughtered down ballot, you know, lost control of the House and lost seats in the Senate and on and on and on. So I think that for the time being, they know that Sanders' particular kind of progressivism, and I might add that it's, it's not a very technocratic kind of progressivism. It's very much an old school leftism where they, he's just going to seize the means of production and distribute health care to everyone without figuring out how to pay for it. Doesn't appeal to people. Like even Democratic voters have, are, you know, have significant distrust of the government at this point in time. And they want to have faith that, you know, if a, if a leader makes grand policy promises, he has some idea of how to implement them. And Bernie hasn't even been trying to pretend that, you know, he's got the money to implement his plans. Mark Hemingway is senior writer for Real Clear Investigations. You can read his columns on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org and follow him on Twitter at Heminator. That's at H-E-M-I-N-A-T-O-R. Mark, thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series on the doctrines of the Quran with Dr. Adam Francisco. We'll get a review of the movie The Invisible Man from Pastor Ted Geese, and we'll respond to your email and the Issues Etc. comment line. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. The Holy Trinity addresses three important things for the reader. Dr. Carl Beckwith talking about his book in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic series, The Holy Trinity. It explains the difficulties we face in confessing the Trinity in our world today. It shows how Scripture carefully and decisively presents the Trinity, and it rehearses the sound pattern of words used by the Church to clarify and defend the witness of Scripture. Learn more about the Holy Trinity at lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. The third commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy laden to rest in him, our true rest, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This weekend, rest in Jesus as you hear his word and receive his gifts. If you are in Southern Illinois, 
you're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstadt.org.